You're listening to Special Education Matters, a regular podcast about things that matter in special education. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and I am the proud father of a 19-year-old boy with autism. As we all know, having a child with special needs may require a lot of effort at home and a ton of effort working with schools to ensure your son or daughter is receiving the services they need. If you're a military family, those efforts may need to be repeated on a regular basis as you move and redeploy to a new location within or even outside of the United States. Advocate Meg Flanagan is currently living in Okinawa, where her husband is based. She understands the unique circumstances military families face and is here to share those experiences and strategies to help families who have a child with special needs. Meg Flanagan, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's nice to talk with somebody who is an expert in military families. We don't think we have a podcast covering that information yet. And it's nice to start off with, if you could just give us a general overview of you personally, what types of services do you provide to families? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I provide mostly virtual support and advocacy. Um, I focus on creating um, stress-free, peaceful communication between families and schools so that both sides of the table can kind of work together as a holistic team to better serve um, children wherever you are located in the world. So things like emails, um, planning and prepping, creating scripts for IEP and 504 plan meetings, um, and helping families really articulate clearly and concisely what it is exactly that their child needs and explain with data and facts why their child needs that. And it sounds like you might be near an Air Force base. I am, yes. The sounds of freedom. (laughs) 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 So what are, like, you know, when a family comes to you, we'll talk about military families in a moment, but when a family comes to you, what what are some of the reasons they come to you and what are some of the first basic questions they ask you and tend to need help with? Yeah, so one of the, since I specialize so much in communication um, and, you know, helping families kind of speak teacher speak, um, one of the first questions is, is usually my kid is insert disability or educational need here. How do I get the school to understand this? How do I say this to the school in a way that they will understand that it means this? Um, because as, as we know in the world of special education, autism doesn't mean the same thing in every child or in, even in every setting, you know, a a kid with autism or ADHD could look very different in art class to math class or, you Mm -hmm. know, fourth grade to fifth grade or child A to child B. And so a lot of it is just, um, helping families to decode what the data is saying and what the school is at saying that they're going to offer. And then what the family feels the kiddo needs. And do you think the families are finding that the schools themselves, that's what it sounds like, are not realizing what the child needs out the gate and that the parent needs to really be there to assist them? Yes, especially um, especially in unusual or um, rare situations where there's not a heavy population of a particular diagnosis or disability um, in the school already or where it's, mm-hmm. kind, of a, or it's kind of a zebra where, where maybe there are like two separate things at play or, you know, three separate things at play that are all influencing the way that X mm-hmm. plays out. Um, you know, there, as, as we know, again, in special education, there's a finite number of resources available. It's not the way it should be, but it is. Um, and so I feel like a lot of schools have adopted um, particular programs or just, you know, MOs of doing things. And when a kiddo does, comes along that doesn't quite fit one of those programs, 
particularly, it's, it's a little bit hard to think outside the box when you're used to doing things a certain way. Um, so I kind of help families guide the schools to an outside of the box thinking gotcha. situation. Right. And, and you work with uh, primarily military families, is that correct? I do. I do work mostly with military families. And that's because you are one of them, right? I am. We are a proud military family. Um, we we live, have lived all over the world, um, literally. <laughs> so <laughs> I am. I am very aware of um, you know kind of the unique struggles and circumstances that military kids have to navigate in order to really just access a basic general K-12 education. But when you throw in, you know, learning differences, exceptionalities, giftedness, disabilities, it, it becomes a whole different ballgame. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. Now, firstly, when you were when you were raised yourself, were you raised in a military family? I was not. I was raised in a very rural community, same school, K-12. Okay. And the reason I ask that is then you can offer this perspective of the differences. So what are some of the unique uh, things or parts of being a military family that might impact special education? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that definitely impacts special education is that even though we have the overarching law in the U.S. of um, IDEA, how each state implements that law and the specific requirements to meet different disability categories can be different state to state. Um, and so for a, ki a kiddo that's, you know, growing up in, say, San Diego, and they're going to be in San Diego for their entire career, that district has a way of doing things, a way of streamlining things, a way of programming things, so that, you know, child A is going to go through school and there's going to be a history there, um, and they're going to meet, you know, Southern, they're going to meet California's requirements for a specific disability category because they're staying in mm -hmm. place. But when you move, um, all of a sudden you're working with different assessments, different benchmarking tools, different ways of dealing with it. So one great example is that some places recognize dyslexia as an IEP-worthy category of disability. Not every state does. Ah. Uh, mm -hmm. although, although the federal law is the same, right? But just federal, different schools interpret it differently, you're saying. Yes, correct, correct. So because IDEA is fairly especially when it comes to um, different categories of disability and how we are, you know, identifying children and including children. Um, it, it's fairly broad. It's like specifically broad. But when it comes down to like numbers and assessments and how and why a child would, would qualify for an IEP, it mm -hmm. varies state to state. Some things it's the same, you know, a kiddo with Down syndrome will probably always qualify for an IEP, right. but not always a kiddo with ADHD or a kiddo with dyslexia or, you know, a high functioning child with autism. Um, it, it's the, it's kind of like those gray areas. So a family can start in one state, have services going for a couple of years, pick up, go to the next state and start the process all over again. And maybe things are delayed by a year or so. Kind of. So federal law does require that IEPs do transfer with you, but the catch is that the new state always reserves the right to reassess. So you can come in with, you know, your your IEP for dyslexia, hmm. but they, if, if they decide to reassess, they're using their benchmarking tools. And so that same child will have the IEP in place for a limited amount of time. And then maybe they'll move to a 504 plan. Ah, uh, okay, I see. 
Yeah. So that just adds, yeah, the layers of complexity to it all for, for the family is already a bit stressed out and ready to go. Correct. And then you add the extra layer of now it's not as simple as moving from, you know, base A to base B and you're going to be enrolled in the, the military school system um, because there's not, there's no military schools west of the Mississippi. So DODEA does not exist in a, in uh, a okay. sense. Right. Um, the, de- the Department of Defense Education Schools. Yes. Correct. Sorry, I'm so used to acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the military, isn't it? Acronyms. <laughs> it, it is, and luckily, it transitions well into the world of special ed. <laughs> oh, right. There's plenty there, true. <laughs> uh, but you have to pick a school that's that's also going to provide those services. We all know that as much as we try with Common Core and you know laws and planning, um, not all schools are created equal, unfortunately, and so. You're trying to pick a school that is going to service your child in the appropriate way and provide the appropriate supports. And you're sometimes trying to figure this out from Germany or Japan or, you know, from Massachusetts or Rhode Island to California or Washington State. And you're doing it all virtually. Mm, right. Which mm-hmm. yeah, continues to add on. Yes. <laughs> I, I was wondering, do military families, are there diagnoses that are more common in military families for special education? Like, for example, you hear, and I'm not sure how true it is, but that parents that work at NASA tend to have kids that have autism. I'm, is there anything that you find that's common in the military that might not be common uh, in a more general population? I feel like we have a, a good chunk of children with um, dyslexia, dysgraphia, and uh, specific learning disabilities, um, as well as a good chunk of kids that are actually twice exceptional. Um, that's that's a huge topic of conversation um, about you know children that that are highly intelligent but also have perhaps you know dyslexia or ADHD or high functioning autism. Um, it's very hard. It's very very challenging to service those children educationally when there is no long term. Um, tracking of them in one single school district. Mm, I see. And it sounds like you've focused a lot on that particular group. We were talking a little bit about the twice exceptional group before the show. Was there a reason that you decided to head that route? Um, one of my really good friends, her son is twice exceptional. Um, and so I've been, I've been chatting with her, you know, on and off for the last three years about the struggles that she's had trying to find him the right level of acceleration and the right supports um, while moving around the world and even transferring, you know, within the same department of defense school system, um, things are different place to place. And so she's having, um, she's having to consider some, some, you know, private schooling and homeschooling options that she had never considered before. Um, and then also as uh, prior to beginning my, um, advocacy work, I was a general education teacher in an inclusion classroom. Um, Mm. so Yeah, so several of my students were twice exceptional, and I saw how heartbreaking it was for their parents to articulate that to the school and to teachers without a special education background um, to explain that, you know, no, he can, he makes up beautiful stories in his head, but the physical act of writing it on the paper hurts him, and so he cannot do that. And so trying to find a way to service both their giftedness and accommodate them for their disability. Right. Now, now I'm going to guess that maybe was more towards the beginning of your career, right? It was, yeah. And for you as a teacher, did you have awareness yourself at that point? 
I, I did. Yes. I actually have a master's in special education. Okay. How about your neighbor who doesn't, you know, the person next door in the hall? I mean, did you find that uh, teachers are less likely to identify or understand twice exceptional kids or is it, is everybody kind of on the same page now? Yeah, I know. I've, I've definitely found that I actually had, um, at once while I was not identified as the inclusion teacher, um, they had already had someone to fill that role, but that person didn't have a special education background. And so one year they did end up with a, a unusual child in their classroom. And, and that child was very quickly moved to my classroom um, because the other teacher just didn't didn't know what to do. It was just very right. frustrating to not have a child that wasn't identified and didn't have a concrete plan. Uh, I see. Uh, now, turning back to the DOD or Department of Defense schools, do they does the law apply the IDEA law and special education apply to those schools in the same way it does to a district in, let's say, California? Yes, it does. Um, and the same way it would it to a district in you know California. Um, Dodea can um, can set their own standards and benchmarks. They follow IDEA and um, and FERPA and 504, um, but they follow the letter of the federal law while also you know kind of implementing their own benchmarking system to mm-hmm. provide the categorizations and um, qualifications. And if you're not happy with the services, do you have right to due process still? You still have the right to due process. You have all the same rights that you would have um, in a traditional public school. Um, the added benefit sometimes is that because many children at Dodea schools are also seen at the military treatment facilities, on mm-hmm. there's a lot more. There's a lot of communication between the medical providers, OT, PT on the medical side, and the school side. So oftentimes at IEP meetings, you'll see um, a military physical therapist, a, a active duty military physical therapist coming in as the, the assessor for PT or OT or, you know, speech and language. They have a lot of really good resources that they can draw on in many locations. Oh, that's great. So it, it isn't, if you go to one of those schools, you aren't necessarily getting at a disadvantage. No, not at all. Um, you're definitely not at a disadvantage. Um, but I will say that you do still need to be an incredibly strong advocate for your child. Um, mm. There's still high turnover, and because it is military children almost exclusively, even on the on-base schools, say at Camp Pendleton or um, you know thereabouts, or you know surrounding in Oceanside and, and Carlsbad and up in San Clemente or out in you know Fallsbrook or Temecula, you're you're going to mm-hmm. need. To, there's a lot of turnover in both teachers and students. And so you're going to need to maintain that academic record on your side to, to prove eligibility and need over and over and over again. Uh, okay. I see. So, you know, Meg, if you don't mind my asking, I'd like to turn to you a little bit. What made you decide to, I mean, you have an education background, you're a certified teacher. Uh, what made you decide to work in the advocacy area? Um, a lot of it had to do with just the heartbreaking stories that I was hearing as a teacher, you know, sitting through IEP meetings as the teacher, um, specifically the general education teacher and, and seeing mom or dad, you know, just break down and, and later they'd come to me and say, man, I, I know we've had this conversation. I know you're in a tough spot, but I wish you could, I wish you could have spoken up or said, you know, what you're doing in the classroom or what we've talked about kind of off the record. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I've seen parents come in, you know, to meetings. I don't know what to do with my kiddo. And they don't know that they can request IEP testing, but I'm discouraged from sharing that information with them as the teacher. Um, and it's also a matter of flexibility. We move, you know, every three years, um, and maintaining certification is, is great, uh, but very expensive. Um, and so I've, I've kind of limited the states where I am certified um, sure, yeah. and moved more into virtual work so that I can service more families and provide more assistance um, without being tied to one physical building or location. So Meg, I, we're heading towards the end of our time here, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about uh, the, what, the work that you do. You have a website, you have a lot of information that you're sharing with families. Why don't you give us the rundown on all of that? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so my website is megflanagan.com, and on there you can find all of the information that I do offer. So right now I have a book called Talk to the Teacher. It's literal scripts that you can take right out of the book and bring with you to your next meeting, whether that's an IEP meeting or just a request for extra help or volunteering on a field trip. Um, you can also, on Monday, January 21st, join my free course called How to Request Testing for Your Child. It'll walk you through the beginning steps of how to request IEP testing and then kind of give you a launching pad about what to expect next. Um, there's also a course for kind of the parents that are maybe not quite qualifying or not quite sure they're ready for an IEP yet called um, How to Help Your Child Succeed at School. And it will walk you through simple and easy ways to um, boost your child's success at school. This is great for kiddos that are, you know, maybe high-functioning um, ADHD or maybe just having a little bit of trouble in reading or math or with behavior. Um, you can also uh, work with me as your advocate. Um, I offer advocacy and family coaching services virtually from the comfort of your own home. Let me say I'll put all that in our show notes. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to another edition of Special Education Matters. For more information, including show notes, head to our website, csnlg.com slash listen. And if you like what you hear, please uh, consider giving us a review on iTunes. Those reviews bring us lots of happiness. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we will talk again soon. <laughs>